Let's take the beginning of verse 30 as our text, where we read that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now, you'll remember that we're considering this particular passage in the wider context of looking at the commandments and the third commandment, of course, in particular. And uh, we've been looking more recently at oaths and vows. And uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at oaths and we saw Jesus Christ himself coming under oath when the high priest put him on oath and because he was put on oath by a lawful authority, he had to answer the high priest. So that was the oath. But here today, uh, we're looking at a vow. And again, we're taking the concrete example of a vow rather than simply looking at it abstractly or philosophically or theologically. We're looking at it in practice here. Perhaps the best known vow in the Bible, the most difficult to understand, as we saw in the morning, but nonetheless a very instructive vow. Now, remember just the rule of thumb. Oaths and vows are fundamentally promises. Promises are just pledges that we make to each other with no higher authority. But an oath is a pledge that we make with God as a witness. A vow is higher still because it is a promise addressed to God directly. So it is an act of worship. So just remember these or that threefold definition. Uh, a promise is between people. An oath is between people with God as a solemn witness. Higher still, you have the vow, which is a promise directly addressed to God. And that's what we're considering here. That's what Jephthah is doing. He is making a promise or a pledge addressed directly to God. Now, I hope we saw plainly in the morning, and if for some reason you weren't able either to be here or um, to be online, please um, go back to what was said this morning, because in many ways it is really essential for a proper understanding of what we're seeing tonight. But you may remember in the morning that we've got no reason to see this as a careless vow, although that's how it's usually explained. Careless vows, you'll remember, are still binding. Uh, We saw an example of that. But this is not a careless vow. It's not a foolish vow. It's not a sinful vow either. All these are different. This isn't the vow of an unenlightened, uh, semi-pagan man. It's uh, very different from that. It's not carelessly made. It's not sinfully fulfilled. This is the vow of a man who... You'll remember knew his Bible. The address that he makes to the Ammonites makes very plain that he knows his own history inside out as the people of God. What's more, he could apply the truth of the Bible to his own day, uh, which is not always easy to do. But he did that. He explained to the Ammonites what their situation was and what Israel's situation was too. And he did it correctly in the light of Old Testament teaching. So he knew his Bible, he could apply his Bible, uh, 
and we saw too that he sought the welfare and the peace of the surrounding nations, which is important, and he sought the peace and the welfare of God's people too. Um, He could easily have rejected his brother's call to come back and help, uh, just as Joseph could have rejected his brothers. But he had the spirit of Joseph himself. And although they had exiled him, disinherited him, and treated him badly, uh, he still came back to help them because, essentially, he loved them and he was concerned for the cause of God. You'll remember, too, Critically, that he makes this vow under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is careful to record that for us. You'll notice the close link between verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 begins by telling us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah as he passed through these cities. And then verse 30 goes on to say that he made a vow to the Lord. So he's not making this vow carelessly, in an inconsiderate way, in fact. He's giving it full consideration. He's well aware of what the vow involves, what its implications might be. It's a vow that finds its origin in the government of the Holy Spirit on his life. And his desire is to honour God in the vow that he makes. And that obviously takes us tonight to the substance of the vow. If all that's true, if he's a good and godly man, if he's under the direct supervision of the Holy Spirit of God, if he has the welfare of the surrounding nations at heart, and if he's governed by love for his brethren, well, what does the vow really mean? What's the substance of the vow? To put it plainly, what is he promising to God? What's he promising? How does he think he's going to fulfill it? And how does he actually fulfill it? All these are important questions. And before answering them specifically, I think it's important to emphasize one thing, that by speaking about a burnt offering, um, Jephthah knows exactly what he means in terms of the spiritual content of the burnt offering. The burnt offering was distinct among all the offerings in the Old Covenant because it carried the idea of totality, absolute consecration. You may remember that the Greek word for burnt offering is holocaust, which, of course, has a particular use now because of the so-called offering, as the Jews see it, of themselves mysteriously to God in an event that they don't understand in the event known as the Holocaust. But the burnt offering was related to the sin offering but distinct from it. It's the only offering in which the entire animal was consumed. And what's being conveyed there is absolute consecration to God, being given over to God body, soul and spirit. That is the lesson of the burnt offering. Our Lord Jesus Christ was simultaneously a sin offering and a burnt offering. Interestingly and importantly at a spiritual level, you are never a sin offering, neither am I. I mean, how could we be? But we are burnt offerings. 
and we are called to be burnt offerings. That is Paul's language in Romans 12, verse 1, where he calls on us to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. He's referring there quite explicitly to the burnt offering. Let your body, he says, your arms, your feet, your eyes, what you see, your ears, what you hear, your mouth, what you say, let your entire body, your entire life be a living sacrifice, a burnt offering to God. And so Jephthah's well aware of that. Whatever he's going to offer, he's going to offer as a burnt offering. In other words, the idea of costliness is in it, and he knows that at the point at which he makes the vow. There's going to be real costliness in it. And we need to recognize that that's what God fundamentally requires of ourselves, too, as Christians. I mean, we, we haven't become Christians to get a, a ticket, uh, to get a kind of entrance into the door of heaven. And Christianity is something very different from that. It's a call to be united with Christ. It's a call to identify with Christ. It's a call to live in the world as Christ lived in the world. If need be, to be rejected and pushed outside the camp. If need be, to be crucified, whatever it take. To live with Christ is to die with Christ in this present life in order to live eternally with him. Costliness is always there in Christianity. And at various points in our pilgrimage, that's going to be tested. At various points in our pilgrimage, we might fail these tests. God willing, by his grace, we recover from that and we pass the tests. We learn through failure quite often. That's how we learn. We learn through failure. But nonetheless, there's a cost element in Christianity. When David, of course, was going to present an offering to the Lord uh, on the very site where he was going to build the temple, he thought he was going to build it himself. It was actually his son who would build it, but he thought he was going to build it. He wanted to buy the site on which the offering was to be offered to the Lord. And the owner of the site said, no, he says, just take the site. I'm, I'm quite happy for you to have this land. Take the altar and build on it what you wish to build. And David said, no, he said, I will not offer to the Lord what cost me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord what cost me nothing. And that kind of spiritual strain of thinking and consecration and self-denial is in the vow that Jephthah is making. In other words, the man is genuinely overwhelmed at God's goodness to him in bringing him to this point. He had thought he would never be accepted in his home, never accepted in his clan, never accepted amongst his people. But God has so turned the situation round in providence that the reject became the man of God's own anointing and choosing. And he wants to express that in an act of consecration to the Lord. And that act involves offering something to God that is from inside his own house. Whatever, he says, if you will deliver the people of Ammon in, into my hands. Now, remember from the morning, that's not a bargain. Uh, this is not a Pharisaic vow that says, you do this, I'll do this. This is an evangelical vow. If, if you're going with me and doing this for me, indeed, he says, 
then this is how I will respond. Whatever or whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be Jehovah's, and I will offer it or him as a burnt offering. What does he intend to offer? Well, it's translated by most versions as whatever comes out the doors of my house. And sometimes I think it's translated like that because, and translators can sometimes um, be given over to thinking like this, they, they maybe think that he must have hoped for some kind of animal to meet him when he arrived home out of the doors of his own house. Now, to be fair, um, and I don't mean to to rubbish explanations like that, I'm, I'm not doing that at all, but um, I've, I've heard such an explanation quite often of this, but to be honest, there are several difficulties with that, and we need to understand these difficulties r- right away. The first is the obvious one, that no animal is likely to cross his door when he's coming home. That's just not really a reasonable thing to expect. Does he really think, as he, as he nears his own household, when the news has filtered through of a success in battle, something that's usually met nationally by women in celebration and in song, for example, in the days of David and so on, does he really think that an animal is going to be the first thing that comes out the door of his house? Now, I'm very well aware, coming from the islands like yourselves, of a past generation where animals lived in pretty close quarters to people. In fact, uh, when my my own mother was very young, that was still the case in in some houses, that there would be um, a cow or something like that in very close proximity. But that's very, very unlikely for someone who has suddenly advanced to the place of being a ruler in Israel. He has already been acknowledged that before he went out to battle. Um, He's not expecting an oxen or a cow or a sheep or a goat to be the first thing that he meets. I think common sense should really tell us that. Neither, of course, is he expecting that it would be a little dog or some other animal like that God doesn't want dogs as sacrifices. Just read your Bible very carefully and you'll discover that God doesn't want dogs as sacrifices. It's also critical to notice that when it comes to burnt offerings, there was an explicit requirement that the burnt offering be male. Leviticus 1, verses 7, verse 10, must be a male amongst the herds, a male goat, or a male lamb, because ultimately the burnt offering was going to represent the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, friends, um, if Jephthah intended uh, an animal uh, to cross the threshold, then all we can say is that it was a foolish and a sinful vow. But for the reasons that I gave in the morning, it's not a foolish and a sinful vow, and therefore he's not expecting an animal. When he says whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, it should really be understood in the sense of whoever comes out. You'll notice the, the creature
future that is coming out of the doors, you'll notice that it's coming out to meet him. Now, that's a conscious, deliberate thing, is it not? Meeting someone. You can't imagine a, a, a cow coming out of his house to meet him, as though it was a pet of some kind. But meeting him, or coming out to meet him, is very easily understood of a person. Because that's what people do. When people are coming home in triumph and celebration, people come out to meet them. In other words, Jephthah meant a person. He meant a person. Whatever he's doing, whatever he's promising, he's promising it in connection with a person. As we saw in the morning, he's promising it intelligently, spiritually, carefully, considerately, and it involves a person. But who? Well, whoever it's going to be. The fourth commandment tells us that when we keep the Lord's day, we're to make sure that our male servant and our female servants keep the Lord's day. Our employers, our employees, sorry, uh, we're to make sure that the stranger within our gates for whom we have responsibility also keeps the Sabbath. These things are reminders to it that for us that in a household like Jephthah's you've got a considerable number of people you've got male servants you've got female servants you've got stewards you have people who are involved in cooking and so on you have a host of people in the home yes his daughter is in the home too so is his wife but he's aware of that he's aware of that I don't think he necessarily thinks that his daughter will come out the door. In fact, I'm quite sure he doesn't think it will be her. Nonetheless, he knows it's a possibility. And he's left that deliberately as open as it can be. Why? Because he's not going to withhold anything from the Lord. You and I know that there's always a problem when we're withholding something from the Lord. When we make these vows and commitments with... um, little clauses and qualifications because really we want to keep a little corner for ourselves or we don't want our consecration or our dedication to be God as, uh, to God to be as absolutely full and as absolutely wholehearted as it sounds. We like to reserve a little bit, a little bit for ourselves. But that's not the spirit of the burnt offering. Let me be consecrated to thee, my entire self, Lord, at your disposal. And that is the spirit of this vow. No one in the house is excluded. Whoever it is, is to be offered as a burnt offering. You may say, why not himself? Well, I'll come to that. But if it is someone in his own household then, what does he intend to do with that person? Well, some say that he intended to give her as a literal burnt offering. In other words, to put her to death and to burn the person's body. I shouldn't say her at this point, but to put whoever it is to death and to burn that person's body. But that would be not just a foolish vow, but a sinful vow. Why? Well, We've already seen that he knows his Bible very well, and it's important for his friends to know our Bibles very well. 
we've seen he has a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament up to his own point in time. And he knows very well that God never requires human sacrifices. God abhors human sacrifices. You find several references to that. For example, Deuteronomy 12 and verse 31. It's the practice of the heathen. It marks out the heathen that they think they can please God by offering a human sacrifice to him. As though a sinful being could please the Almighty as an offering. When strictly speaking in that capacity, it cannot. In fact, it's one of the heathen practices which required the cleansing of the land of Canaan in the first place. Uh, You'll remember that from the morning that the particular reason Israel was called to cleanse the land of Canaan um, was because for 400 years the people of that place had been polluting the land with every kind of sin and defilement, with every kind of human uh, cruelty imaginable, including the activity of offering their own children as sacrifices to enrich themselves and to please their gods. The command to cleanse that part of the, of the, of the world was a once-for-all command. It has expired. Uh, Israel were God's executioners on that one occasion only. But it's important to remember that God abhors human sacrifices. And there's just no way that a godly man like this on the eve of a battle can say that I am going to offer as a human sacrifice whoever crosses the threshold of my door. If he was considering that, was there a priest worth his name, worth his vocation and worth his title in the whole of Israel who'd be willing to perform it? At this time, following the law, all sacrifices have to be offered by the priesthood. Which priesthood is going to take a young girl because his father had offered to sacrifice the first person that came across the threshold? No priest worth the salt is going to do that. Again, he has simply no authority whatsoever to kill anyone who crosses the door of his threshold. He doesn't have the authority to do it. We can't take anyone's life. Supposing it is a servant. Supposing it is the chief steward of his house. Supposing it is the leading female servant or the leading male servant. There's no authority just to take their life because he vowed it. It's a sinful vow to promise someone else's life. You remember in the morning a careless vow still needs to be kept. A sinful vow needs to be repented of. If you fulfill a sinless vow, you're adding a sin to a sin. So this needs repentance. If it's wrong, if it's not wrong, it needs fulfillment. It's not wrong, and Jephthah knows it needs fulfillment. So what exactly is Jephthah promising? Well, I think, friends, you have to move away from the idea of a literal burnt offering because he's talking about people, remember. He's expecting a person to meet him, not a dog or a cow or an oxen. And therefore he's not thinking in terms of a literal burnt offering. And there are clues in that direction scattered all through the text. First you'll notice that there's no mention of putting this person to death. 
No express mention of that anywhere. As well as that, you'll notice a peculiar emphasis on the girl's virginity. In verses 37 and 38 and 39, it is specified that this girl is a virgin and she remains a virgin. Crucially, at the end of verse 39, when we're told that Jephthah carried out his vow, the last sentence in the verse says that she knew no man, which seems to imply that the vow had something to do with not knowing a man. What's the emphasis on the virginity? Again, there is this mysterious retreat to the mountains, and I call it a retreat for a particular reason, which we'll see later on. But the girl, when she discovers what her father has vowed, she asks for his permission to go with her closest friends, we would call them girlfriends, but they are spiritual girlfriends, to go with her closest girlfriends for two months, where she can lament the fact that she is going to remain a virgin, that she is going to have no husband, that she's going to have no family. Now it's obvious from the way that this girl responds, and she's a lovely spiritual girl, obviously. I'm going to highlight that just a little later on, but we can say right now in her honour, as a, as a young woman of God, she has remarkable strength, spiritual poise. It's very obvious that she loves her family. It's obvious, too, that she respects her father. She doesn't respond like someone who thinks her father is a fool, that her father has done something that he ought not to have done. She doesn't plead with her father to repent or to change his mind or anything of that kind. And so it's very, very interesting that she doesn't spend the last two months of her life in her family's presence. I mean, she loves her family, respects her family, but she, asked for the, she asks for the last two months here before the fulfillment of the vow. Did I say before the end of her life? Before the fulfillment of her vow, she spends the last two months on the mountains in the company of her closest spiritual Friends, now all these things, when you think about them, are moving you away from the idea of a, a burnt offering to the idea of a spiritual burnt offering. If you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice that there are various vows of consecration by which people are set apart for the Lord's service, either for a time or for life. Take the Nazarite. The Nazarite was a person, a male person. Um, and during the period of the Nazarite vow, where they were specially set apart to God, again, I, d I don't have time to uh, go into that right now, and it would be a bit of a digression, but for the time that they were specially set apart to God, no razor was to cut their hair. They weren't to touch the fruit of a grape. They weren't to touch anything that was dead and uh, various other things too. You could take that Nazarite vow temporarily or you could be a Nazarite for life. There are three Nazarites for life in the Bible. 
One is Samuel, the other is Samson, and the other is John the Baptist. And if you were to ask what the primary function of a Nazarite is, I mean, suppose you saw a Nazarite from life. His hair would be in seven locks piled up on his head like Samson's was, which is a, the covered head indicates consecration. That's why a woman's head is to be covered in worship. The covered head of the Nazarite indicates his perfect consecration. The sevenfold locks are a perfect consecration to God. So if you saw that lifelong Nazarite walking past, you would immediately think of him as a walking burnt offering. He's alive, yes. He's not laid out on an altar. There's no knife being put to him. There's no flame being put to his body, but he is a walking burnt offering. What you would say of that person is that his entire being is consecrated to God. And when you would see a person like that, or when a person like that would be in your company, it would have a sanctifying effect on everybody. At least if they were living according to their outward appearance, it would have a sanctifying effect upon everybody. They were walking burnt offerings. A Nazarite. Uh, if a Nazarite uh, was to be redeemed out of his Nazarite vow, there was a certain expense to be paid which could redeem the person from the vow. You'll notice that um, Jephthah doesn't even consider redeeming this girl from whatever vow she's under. Again, I'll come back to that. So the Nazarite is someone set apart for the Lord's service. Another example, of course, are the Levites. Um, God had a right to the firstborn in every family. He waived that right. And instead of that, he chose the entire family of the Levites to function as a priesthood for himself. They had no right of property in land or anything like that. They were to be sustained by the givings of the Lord's people, by the tithe which belonged to the Levites. They were dedicated to the Lord's service. And um, because they belonged to the Lord, that meant that um, that entire tribe um, was dedicated in each generation. But they had to be physically and spiritually dedicated. Uh, hands were laid on them as they were consecrated to the Lord. And when the hands of other priests were laid upon them, they were offered to the Lord. That's the word that's used, offered. And you'll notice that the offering that they are is a whole offering. It's an entire burnt offering. The Levite is offered to God all his faculties, all his powers, the strength of his mind, his teaching ability, because the Bible tells us that the priest's lips must keep knowledge. So every faculty, every part of him, body, soul, and spirit, is wholly dedicated to the Lord. And at the same time as the Levites were dedicated, a bull was offered as a burnt offering. Now, that's a rather remarkable thing. On the other hand, it's quite expected and straightforward. What the Lord is saying there by offering a bull as a burnt offering at the point at which the Levites are consecrated, what the Lord is saying effectively is that this 
burnt offering of the animal is being lived out in the life of the Levite. The burnt offering, in other words, represents a lifetime service. And a lifetime service is effectively a burnt offering. It's a burnt offering. A lifetime service of God is a burnt offering. But we don't have an Nazarite here. Neither do we have a Levite. What we've got is a young woman. So what could that mean? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but at various points in the Old Testament there are references to women who are busy ministering at the door of the tabernacle. Not many, just a few. For example, when the bronze laver was being made where the priests washed their hands, the the basin, that bronze basin in the tabernacle, was constructed out of the mirrors that belonged to the women who served at the tabernacle door. You'll notice again how the idea of cost is somehow going into the idea of God's service. I mean, why make the labor out of the mirrors that belong to the women, their their best mirrors? I suppose it's a way of saying that um, it's not ourselves and our external appearance that matters most to God. I'm sure there were other mirrors that they continued using, but not the burnished bronze ones. They were the valuable ones. The burnished bronze ones were the ones in which you could see your face most clearly. But God says, I'll take them, and I'll use them as the basin uh, where my priests wash their hands and their feet. But for us right now, the interesting point is that there are women who are ministering at the door of the tabernacle. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, we learn the solemn truth that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were lying with women who ministered at the door of the tabernacle in a gross abuse of their own power and their supposed authority. Eli, of course, was judged eventually himself for not disciplining his sons in the priesthood. Um, Because as Samuel said to him, I mean, God used Samuel to rebuke Eli, which is a very difficult thing for Samuel to do because Samuel really loved Eli. Eli had had brought himself up uh, in the tabernacle to, to know and to serve the Lord. And Samuel really loved that old man of God with all his heart. But God actually gave him a message of heaviness and of chastisement to give to his father. And the message of chastisement was that his father had honoured his sons more than God. It was a a grievous failing that he had honoured his sons more than God. I don't mean by that, I don't think, sorry, I don't think we meant to understand by that that Eli wasn't a man of God, but that he did get something very badly wrong. And that there was chastisement for it. Because these things happen, friends. These things happen. And they still do happen in the church of God. But they abused their office and took advantage of perhaps more vulnerable women, in a certain way, who were ministering at the door of the tabernacle. I wonder sometimes if Anna the prophetess in the New Testament was like this. We're told that she was constantly in the temple. Paul speaks about a group of widows uh, who have washed the feet of the saints and uh, who are constantly ministering to
to the saints. And you can't help but wonder if women like that were like Anna, she was free, she didn't have family, uh, her husband had died long, long ago, and while she was still fit and able, she just dedicated herself to the Lord's work. She, she didn't have an office. People, people are obsessed about office. Uh, oh, office and dignity of office. And it's not about office. Christian service is not about office. It's about what you can do for the Lord, whether you have office or not. And someone like Anna is there, ready to serve, ready to help. She is always in the vicinity of the temple, speaking to the people who are going in, speaking to the people who are going out. If they need something, if they need any help, she will try to give that help or she will try to organize that help. Why? Because she loves to do it. And she's dedicated to the service of the Lord. And that's why it's easy to believe that what Jephthah has in mind is that whoever in his own house um, comes out first is going to be dedicated entirely to the service of the Lord and of the Lord's house. There are some ways, of course, and there are many ways in which um, men and women can do that. Of course, with men, there's an immediate thought of something like office, particularly the ministry of the word, which God requires to be consecrated to. He says of ministers of the word that they're not to entangle themselves with the affairs of this life. That doesn't mean being worldly. He's not talking about worldliness there in that sense. He's talking about business, things of that kind. He says, don't be involved in that. Uh, don't be involved in business or politics or that kind of thing. He says, but consecrate in yourself entirely to being a soldier in the one who has called you into his army. Give yourself wholly to these things. Meditate on these things, he says, entirely, and your progress will be evident to all. And there's no doubt that the Lord's cause needs such people. It needs those who are dedicated to his own service, to the ministry of the word of God, to the declaration of it. And as I alluded to in the morning, if people, if, if ministers set apart in their calling knew the word of God as well as Jephthah did, and if they were able to apply it in their own context and culture as well as Jephthah was able to apply it even to the Ammonites, we'd all be better off as churches and as a nation. An ignorant ministry was like an ignorant priesthood in the Old Testament. The most dispiriting thing was to go to a priest's lips and to find that they had no knowledge. It's just as bad to go into a church and find a wooden minister who doesn't really know the Bible at all. And I'll tell you something, they're not few and far between. Sad to say. And in saying that, I'm not trying to lift myself up or indeed any other minister up. All I'm saying is that that's just a fact and it's a sad fact. And it's a revelation of the seriously backslidden state of the church in the Western world. Praise God, it's not in other parts of the world. It's an astonishing thing that any sense that you see, uh, generally speaking, any sense that you see in the Church of England seems to come from the subcontinent, from the, from the African and the Asian parts in that church. That's just the way it is. But if you think of 
take some of the great um, female missionaries of the past, those who used to be household names in Christian circles and deserve to be so still. Think of somebody like Amy Carmichael, um, who gave up herself having a husband or having a family and dedicated herself absolutely entirely to the service of the Lord in India. And she encountered astonishing hardship. I mean, she was mainly working with young girls who were being coerced into prostitution and things like that. And people forget uh, all this talk of empire and colonialism and stuff. They, they forget the amount of work that ordinary Christian men and women did to bring real dignity and meaning to the life of so many people, young and old, in these nations. Uh, I, I remember an interview... I'm sorry to just digress very, very briefly, but I remember an interview I heard recently on radio... Uh, where people were discussing the state of charities in the UK and um, why charities were declining and so on. And this person, who I don't think was a Christian, uh, actually came out and said that if it were not for Christian people and churches, that the, 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 the charitable world would more or less collapse in the UK. That people have no idea how much of the charitable world is afloat and functioning because of the input of those who love and fear God. Like so many other things in life, you only value them when they're gone. And there's a, a political commentator who just said recently, he confessed that he's not a Christian, but he says something's going wrong with this country because Christians are disappearing and diminishing. Isn't that interesting? It's rather like what Matthew Paris said a few years back, who again is not a believer. He's not a believer, but he wrote this column in the Times, I can't remember now, about five or six years ago. He says, I don't know why I'm saying this effectively, he says, because I am not a believer, but what Africa needs is evangelical Christianity. That's a quite remarkable thing to say. But that lady just dedicated herself, Amy Carmichael, she dedicated herself to that work. And she was contacted, I, I thought of this, that she was contacted this when, by, a, by a, a woman at home who was thinking of doing what she did. And at this point, Amy Carmichael was quite well on in, in her own ministry there in India. And this lady asked her, what is it like being a, a missionary? What's a missionary's life like? And Amy Carmichael wrote back and she said, a missionary life, she said, is a chance to die for the Lord. That's, that's how she described it. It's a chance to die for the Lord. She didn't mean by that that martyrdom was awaiting her. That's not what she meant at all. She just meant that she was dying every day. She was dying to self every day. She was renouncing self every day to a degree that most of us probably just don't even understand. Now, if that's the case here, if this is some kind of consecration, the whole passage comes together. If it's not, it falls apart. So let's take the option that keeps the passage together. And just very briefly, this looks as though I'm coming to the main headings, I'm not. But let's just take a brief look at the faith of Jephthah and his daughter. First of all, in connection with Jephthah, when he offered the consecration of someone from his house, well, here's the rub. Is he really willing to carry it out, or is he not? It's one thing to offer a trusted servant, a steward, 
somebody he knows and loves, just like Abraham loved Eliezer, the chief steward in his own house. But is he prepared to give his own daughter? One of the things that characterized some of the judges is that they were a bit too keen to move towards being kings. You see that in connection with Abimelech. Jephthah, of course, has specified if he's coming back to help Israel, he says, you must recognize my headship. And that, I believe, is a spiritual thing and a spiritual request. He was trying to bring the people back to God. But with a request like that, there's always a danger of having a a false motive or another motive lurking underneath. Brings me back to Peter again. Strange how so many roads come back to Peter. But uh, when Peter saw the rich young ruler unable to make a sacrifice, he turned to the Lord and said, We've left everything for your sake. He said, What shall we have? And the Lord proceeded, first of all, to tell him that there is a reward for forsaking everything for him, and then second, to warn him against a Pharisaic bargaining spirit, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And here's the question. Is Jephthah wanting some kind of headship for himself? Does he want this position that's going to be given For God's sake or for his own sake? These are the tests that God presents before us in whatever walk of life you're in. Are you in this for my sake or for your own sake? What do you want a husband for? For your sake or for my sake? What do you want a wife for? For your sake or for my sake? What do you want a salary increase for? For my sake or for your sake? God has lots of ways of testing these things. Jeremiah had a secretary called Baruch. And uh, the secretaries in those days, uh, they were actually scribes, which is much more than a secretary as we know secretaries. And uh, he would be a distinguished and honorable man. But he discovered that Jeremiah was uh, losing his place in Jerusalem because he was faithful. He was being diminished, finding himself in difficulty. And Baruch was finding that he was lumped in with Jeremiah because of that. Even when he was transcribing what Jeremiah, the word of the Lord that Jeremiah had, Baruch was writing it and disseminating it. Sometimes we're told that Baruch was the person reading it. And of course Baruch was feeling the difficulty of all this. And God suddenly cuts across him and said, Baruch, he says, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't seek them. He says, I'll give you your life as a reward. A life rich and full, eternal life, life with God, a life hidden with Christ in God. But that's your reward. Don't expect it necessarily in this life. So Baruch got back to working with a better spirit. But that's essentially what's brought before Jephthah here. Is he seeking great things for himself? The consecration of a steward would be one thing. Saying cheerio to his daughter is another. How would we all feel about that? Remember, we're told she's his only daughter and he has no sons. If he's got ambitions of establishing a dynasty, if he's got ambitions for being a king, well, they're all going to disappear if his daughter never has a husband 
and if she never has children. No family, no dynasty, no kingly household. Well, Jephthah, if that's what God wants, are you prepared for that? In some respects, there's a kind of comparison here with the way that Hannah offered Samuel. The comparison, I think, runs quite deep. Hannah was desperate for a child. Desperate for a child. As the years passed, that desperation only increased. Until God essentially took her to a point where he was saying to her, Why do you want the child, Hannah? Is it because you're in competition with your sister wife? Or do you want a child for me? Do you want a child for the kingdom's sake, or just purely for yourself? Do you want a child to be able to gloat over your sister wife? Why do you want a child? And Hannah was brought to the point where she said, You give me a child, and I'll give this child right back to you. At that point, she conceives. There's a deep lesson in that. We always need to be brought to the place of God first. When we are, God starts working in our lives. Whenever we move away from that, God's work in our lives dries up. And deep down, we know it. Interestingly, Hannah dedicated himself, dedicated her child to the service of God in the tabernacle. Strange position, wasn't a formal one. But there he went as a little boy, uh, barely weaned, five, six years old, uh, went round everywhere with Eli in the tabernacle uh, because God's hand was on that child. And uh, Hannah, of course, had the privilege a couple of times a year of coming up to see him, uh, making a quote for him, but we're told that her heart was glad and she rejoiced. Why? Because nothing at last makes you happy, quite like doing something for God. Uh, The devil will tell you that doing something for yourself is far better. It actually isn't. So really, this is a great act of faith, and it's a great act of faith on the part of his daughter. She's not an unfortunate victim. I mean, if, if, if you look at this chapter in another light, you'll think, oh, well, here she is, an unfortunate victim, She's a girl in a house, she's got no say in a matter, and she's being put to death by a father who's made a foolish vow. Not so. Not true of her father, not true of herself. You'll notice her remarkable, as I said, her spiritual poise and calmness. Verse 36 and 37. After Jephthah has torn his clothes because he can't believe that this is actually what's required of him, I suppose he hoped... uh, for something else. But this is what's required. But she said, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, then do to me according to what's gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. But just let this be done. For two months may I go and wander on the mountains, lamenting my virginity, my friends, and dying. Is she not to be praised? Yes, friends, she is to be praised. Most women find their fulfillment in home 
and family. And Christian women find a particular joy in raising children for the Lord, who will be themselves men and women. That meant more to the women in Israel, I suppose, than than it means to most women now. In fact, women are actively being discouraged from thinking like that. But it really meant a lot to them. And she knows that she's got to let that go. She's not just to be reconciled to it either. She's got to somehow choose it and accept it. Because I think that element's in it. Just like Rebecca, when she knew that she had to go and marry Isaac, she was still told, will you do so? Wilt thou go with this man? Here you'll notice there's a kind of acquiescence on her own part. As she's encouraging her father to go ahead, that is effectively her saying, go ahead. It's far harder to choose something than to be reconciled to it. I mean, to take a similar example, let's say a woman is childless. It's far harder to choose that childlessness if you want a child. It's harder to choose it than it is just to be reconciled to it. Don't get me wrong, it's hard to be reconciled to it, but it's harder still to choose it. Just quickly notice her spirituality, and I I don't like saying that. Things like this deserve far more than that. But for two months she wants to go to the mountains. Why? Well, what are the mountains in the word of God? They're always a place away from people and near to God. On several occasions, Christ withdraws and goes up to the mountains to pray. Here you've got a curious mix of isolation and fellowship. She wants to be apart, but she wants to be apart with people. That's what we would call nowadays a retreat. If you're going on a retreat, you're going away from everything with people. It's a mix. That's what she wants. She knows the cost of her calling. And she knows the pain of it. And she wants to be with people who understand the cost of her calling and the pain involved. Sometimes only women understand women. And sometimes men understand men. You'll notice that they're not mourning her death because there's no word of her death. They're mourning the blessings of family life that she probably look forward to and she's not going to have. No husband, no children. But she prays it through. And after two months, she comes back. Notice she doesn't run away. She comes back and she's willing to go through with it. Her father goes through with it and we're told that she knew no man because that's what was gone through. She was dedicated to that. And as the years pass, she dedicates herself to the service of the Lord's people, probably at the tabernacle sanctuary. And her lifelong virginity and dedication to God, apart from family life, just preaches to everyone around her. Like the Nazarite, she's a walking burnt offering, dedicated to the Lord. She still speaks to us, married or not. It's interesting that Paul says to the, to the, to the virgins in Corinth that, They need to think hard about marriage. They need to recognize that marriage is perhaps going to divide them in some sense, rightfully so. There's a concern for your husband that comes in. Unmarried, you might be dedicated to the things of the Lord. And he's wanting them to really consider that. 
He asks the men to do the same things, to consider, to consider a non-married state. But then suddenly Paul says, by the way, he says, I want you who are married to act as though you weren't. Because there's an urgency in the times. Uh, He doesn't mean by that neglecting your marriage. That's not his meaning. His meaning is there's a spiritual impulse, an urgency that's necessary. And you must avoid being sucked up in, in family life as though it's everything. One thing I've noticed recently in connection with families is that they are either neglected or idolized. Both of them are problematic situations. Neglected or idolized. Don't neglect your family. Don't put your family first either. God first. That may mean something radical for how you raise your family. Does a woman like this deserve to be remembered? Yes. Four days every year, not necessarily the same four days for all the women, but there was an attempt made to go and to lament the daughter of Jephthah. I drew your attention in the word in this morning this morning to the word lament. In the authorized version there's a little note which says or to talk to. That's a better translation. The word lament appears two two other times here in the passage and it's the ordinary word for lament. This word is not. It's translated lament because I think the translators thought she was dead. But she's not dead. The word is a rare one in the Bible and it means to to tell, to declare. And these young women are visiting Jephthah's daughter and declaring something. Declaring what? Well, there's plenty to declare. They, including her closest friends, can declare what the Lord has done for them. Through the years how the Lord has granted them husbands, how he's granted them home and granted them family. She, on her part, can say how the Lord has been a husband to her and how the Lord has been her family and how the Lord has helped her to consecrate herself entirely to his service because that's what God wanted for her. So this most famous vow in the Bible, it's not a foolish vow, it's not a sinful vow, it's not made by an ignorant, barbaric, semi-heathen who doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't sin when he made it, and neither did he sin when he kept it. There's a reason why his name is in Hebrews 11. His daughter well deserves to be remembered too. Let's close our service by singing in Psalm 66 to God's praise. Psalm 66. Verse 10. For thou didst prove and try us, Lord, as men do silver try, brought us into the net and made bands on our loins to lie. These people are just brought to nothing. You caused men to ride over our heads. 
And though we did pass through fire and water, yet you brought us to a wealthy place. And here's his response. I'll bring burnt offerings to your house. To thee my vows I'll pay, which my lips uttered. My mouth spake when trouble on me lay. Let's just sing these three stanzas. If I gave four to the presenter, let's just stick to three. Ten to fourteen, let's stand and sing them.